just saying you need to think out the box, Peter. Ever get stressed about thinking outside the box? Me, uh, I'm an inside-the-box person. If it's a messy lab with old-fashioned equipment, I just clear off a bit of the table, put my books there, my flasks here, and I get on with it. Someone else walks in and says, we're going to clean out this lab, we're going to buy some new equipment, we're going to think outside the box. My own field, I'm inside the box. It's a mature field, it's been going for 100 years or more, X-ray diffraction. It's been around a long time. So you would think there's not much new stuff going on. There were a couple of Nobel Prizes early on, in fact there were two or three, and you think, well, that's that. Now the Nobel Prizes will go in other directions. Would you believe that there's been five more Nobel Prizes in the last 20, 30, 40 years for brilliant new stuff that people like me would never even think of? And I was at a meeting in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, people doing stuff that I wouldn't even dream of thinking about. It's wonderful, isn't it? I'm happy in my box, but I don't want to keep God inside my box. I don't want to keep God inside a box that's full of childish visions of who God is. Not childlike, but childish. J.B. Phillips wrote some time ago, Your God is too small. That helped me a lot when I was a young Christian. He says, to the nominal Christian of the mid-20th century, your God is too small. That's why people aren't very interested in it. Your God is like Santa Claus. Your God is a policeman. Your God is your conscience. Our God is much too big. And says J.D. Phillips, we should look at Jesus Christ, who's not quite so meek and mild as you think, to see what God is really like. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to think about Jesus Christ as we see him in the book of Revelation. I've been looking at the book of Revelation recently a little bit, mulling over John's vision in Revelation 1 and the letters to the seven churches. I love the book of Revelation. <clears throat> I love the, this wonderful beginning we sang about. Thank you for the songs and that wonderful reading. I'm awed by the wonderful pictures at the end, aren't you? with the heavenly city coming out of Jerusalem. We're a small church. We read about mega churches, perhaps, and we think, eh, maybe not for us. But God loves a lot of people, doesn't he? It's a heavenly city coming out in Revelation 21. It's not a rural, it's not just rural, it's got trees in there, but it's a heavenly city. God loves a lot of people, that's why I made so many of them. And maybe he waited until there were seven or nine billion of us. Oh, shut up. And then, I like the, the middle of Revelation. I know it's full of stuff that we don't understand. I think the people who read it probably understood what it was meant to say more than we do. And I know there's all kinds of theories, and I've read them all. And David has explained them to me sometimes. But the coolest reflection on all those chapters in the middle of Revelation was captured for me by the um, statement of a youngster who read Revelation, a really young person, and they said, cool, isn't this wonderful? We won! We won! It's a message of comfort, isn't it? It's a message of comfort that God is in control. John writes from Patmos and says, he was banished there because of his testimony about Jesus Christ. Patmos is not so small, it's an island about three or four 
three by four miles, and archaeology shows there's been a rich culture over there for thousands of years. But in the time of Rome, the time we're talking about, first century AD, it wasn't very highly populated. It was used by the Romans as a penal colony, we've learned from some of the Roman writers. Uh, I've read them personally, but that's what I read. Well, it doesn't look so bad now, does it? And my wife and I are going to visit there in a few weeks. I can't wait to see it. We think it well might have been the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. It says John, not that common a name then, but it's not certain. It doesn't matter. And we know the book was written to encourage Christians in what was then called Asia. In the passage we read together, John was writing to the seven churches. Let's have a look at them. There they are. And he starts with Ephesus, bottom left, where the stars are, and goes around in clockwise order to Laodicea. That's the last one. And those are the seven churches. And it looks as if it, the letter was meant to be read to the first one and then carried to the second one and carried on round. I note that Paul the Apostle, with his missionary journeys, was involved in several of those places we've read. He spent a long time in Ephesus, didn't he, on the coast there? And there was a moving parting on the sands, if you remember, when he was on his third missionary journey going on his way back to Rome. Couldn't even go and visit the church. He had them come to the beach. Remember that? And then where else was Paul? Well, hmm, the book of Colossians was written to the town of Colossae, which is really near Laodicea, the last one. And in fact, if you read the book of Colossians, it's got a couple of references to Laodicea. So it overlaps what we read about in the book of Acts with Paul. I thought it overlapped with Philippians, where Paul and Silas were beaten up and started a new church there, and God performed wonderful miracles. But Philadelphia, yeah, not the same city. Philippi is in northern Greece, in Macedonia, not the same one as Philadelphia. Thank you. John's description of Christ as a blazing being is overwhelming. Even if we recognize he's using very symbolic language, which we sang about, to describe what he saw. As one commentator on the, those verses 12 to 16 put it, this was not, I'm sorry, Pat, but this was not an image that was meant to be painted. It's all very symbolic. And <clears throat> what the risen G Jesus says and what the risen Jesus looks like are so big, it seems almost blasphemous to try to do anything with it, to analyze it. It frankly made me feel a little uncomfortable. When I reread his messages to the seven churches, I found myself feeling a bit more uncomfortable because he kept saying, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. He says, I rebuke and discipline those whom I love. I'd like to be told, I love you. And then the bit about rebuking a little bit later on. <clears throat> He picks out on people who are teaching wrong things. It's not lovey-dovey. He says poor people are rich. And he says rich people are poor and naked. He wants no compromise with the world. He wants them to persevere through difficulties. They had difficulties then that we can hardly guess at. Other Christians in the world do have those too. He wants us not to lose our first love for him. Whew. That Christ I see floors me. But as I looked at it all, as I thought about it, I thought it's the same Jesus 
portrayed in that glowing vision with those strong words is the same Jesus the Old Testament talks about and looks forward to. It's the same Jesus in the, that we read about in the Gospels who is pretty forceful after all. It's the same Jesus who was preached in the book of Acts. It's the same Jesus who's written about in those wonderful epistles. Let me pick out just a few of the things said about Jesus in this vision and think about them a bit. First, verse 18, I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. This is different from that famous resurrection of Lazarus. Do you remember the story of Lazarus in the grave? The sisters have been mourning him. How long had Lazarus been dead? Well, someone knows. <laughs> Four days. And Jesus says, come out, Lazarus. And Lazarus came out of the grave, still wrapped in his grave clothes, came out. But Lazarus died at some point. We all die sometime. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was forevermore. I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. Evermore. How important the resurrection is for us. Paul knew it was important. He met, unexpectedly, you remember, the resurrected Jesus in Acts chapter 9, and it took him days to even begin to process what he needed to do about it. That Jesus was alive was important to Paul, and that Jesus was al is alive was important to the early Christians. And that Jesus is alive, was dead but is alive, is important for you and me now. That's why Paul spent quite a lot of time writing about the resurrection in when? 1 Corinthians, and you know it, chapter 15, verse 12. How could some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? He says. It's of first importance, verse 3. He was raised the third day according to the scriptures, verse 4. And lots and lots of people saw him walking around, verses 5 to 7. Many of the so-called liberal churches in the 20th century did not preach a literal resurrection from the dead. I talked with many people who said, well, we hardly know what happened when Kennedy was assassinated. How can we really know what happened on that day? That was very prevalent. I'm not sure what the prevailing view is now, but for you and me who love the Lord, I was dead. Evermore, praise God. It's a message of hope. It's a message of hope for you and me. It implies that we too will rise from the dead. John affirms this in verse 5 of our reading from Revelation. Jesus Christ, the firstborn. Firstborn implies there will be others. I am the firstborn of four boys in my family. If I was the only child, I'd be an only child, not a firstborn. Is that right? Firstborn means there's siblings there. Firstborn means others will rise. You and me. Don't all four Gospels end with that mystery of the missing body and the women finding and talking to Jesus. The risen Lord showing himself to the disciples. Doesn't he promise that his followers will be with him in heaven in John 14? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So that Christ is very much alive now. Now. is affirmed by John in Revelation in total harmony with the rest of the Bible. He's alive. 
He's alive when we get together and read the Bible. He's alive when we sing our praise songs. But is he alive during the week? Not just the prayer walk on Sunday, but is he alive as we work our way through the day, Monday through Saturday? Is he alive as we pray our way through the day for you and me? Verse 17, John sees Christ declaring, I am the first and the last. The theologians will tell us that's claiming divinity there. I'm not going there. I'm just interested. He's alive in the beginning. He's the first. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, says John, at the beginning of his gospel. And what's next? The Word was God. Christ was there at the beginning. Current cosmologists talk about the universe, the Big Bang, as they call it. <coughs> An understatement, in my view, of what must have happened. Fourteen and a half billion years ago, or something like that, is this. Christ was there. Our solar system began, the world began about four and a half billion years ago. Christ was there. The young Earth had a, an amazing glancing collision with a huge <coughs> another planetary body and that became our moon. Christ was there when all that happened. Christ was there when the first man and woman were made. Christ was there. John chapter 1 verse 14 says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word that was there when the stars were being first created. That word became flesh, and people saw him and walked with him, Jesus Christ on earth. Lucky them, I say. For the disciples, he was then and now. And for us who love him, he's here now, isn't he? But when the 21st century is all forgotten, he will still be there. Christ will not just be there at the end. Christ will be the end. He will wrap all things up. Christ is the last. I love that. I am the first and the last. And I don't want my astronomy, which I love reading about, and you do because it's all over the papers these days. I don't want that to be separate from my walk with God. Christ is the first and the last. Is this the Christ? Is this the Christ who encourages you and me when circumstances bring us down? Or when we feel depressed. I don't know about you. I rarely feel depressed. But sometimes something comes over me. I have no reason why not. I have to think, what in the world happened? Why do I? Why is the, everything half full? <laughs> half empty rather than half full. When we feel depressed, he was the first. And is he the one who encourages us out of those times? Is he the one? And Christ will be there at our last. We all will die. And our last times, he will be there with us as an encouragement at our last. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. It says in verse 5, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Christ is in charge. What a comfort <clears throat> for those being persecuted when it seems very much that someone else is being in charge. Then the emperor and all his soldiers and his lackeys. Now, who is it in charge? The boss? The media? Our culture? 
Revelation presents Christ as the one in charge, the one who is coming in the clouds, we sang, and all the tribes will mourn over him. This is the message of the Old Testament, isn't it? God in charge. The message of Isaiah, God over all. It's the message of Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm talking about Jesus ahead of time. And the kings of the earth are exhorted, do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. God's servant is in control. And it's the message of the Gospels, too. Yes, it is. Matthew, well, it was a detailed Bible study. We'd have lots and lots of passages. But the end of Matthew, what does Jesus say? He says, all authority has been given unto me. This is the risen Jesus talking to the disciples. All authority has been given to me. And because of that authority, he sends them and us out. Christ is in charge, not the world, not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not President Putin. Linked with this idea is, is verse 17. I have the keys of death and Hades. Meaning he will judge the world as well as rule it. He will decide what happens to people. There is a distinction coming between eternal death and eternal life. Medieval artists used to love to paint scenes of hell. We can see these wonderful old paintings in museums. Or if you have a friend wealthy enough to pay many millions of dollars for a painting, maybe you'll see it in your friend's house. Let me know. Dante's description of hell, a 700-year-old masterpiece, is still very much read and appreciated. Some of our classic preachers, like Jonathan Edwards and many others from years past, preached a lot about hell. We, we avoid it. We have difficulty in conceiving this. How could God judge people like that? We are too aware that we are very like the people that don't follow Christ. <clears throat> How could make God make a distinction between us and those guys out there? Most of them are pretty nice people. We've had times when we wanted to hurt and manipulate others. We've had difficulties controlling our sexual part of our lives. We get angry. We don't love or respect our spouses as we should. No, we certainly can't judge other people too much. God doesn't ask us to judge, but he will judge. Jesus talks of the narrow way, doesn't he, in the Gospels? The narrow way that leads to life. And the, what is it? The broad way that leads to destruction. They say there's more from Jesus about heaven and hell than the rest of the Bible. We don't often think about that. Jesus talks of a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. He says the Father gave him authority to execute judgment. He has the keys of death and hell. Yes, John's vision is of a divine, powerful Christ. That's the Christ we read also in John's Gospel. And is this the Christ I have in mind when I bring my prayers and my requests? It's a scary vision, to me anyway. How reassuring that the first word, <clears throat> the risen Jesus, says to John, who has collapsed on the floor, you note, in fright and awe, is 
What is his first word? Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That reminds me of his first word to Mary when the angel comes to say, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. Oh my God, what's this? Don't be afraid. And the women who saw the risen Jesus first, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's an encouragement to us who are struggling. It's an encouragement for all who are seriously about following Jesus. He's very high. He expects a lot, but he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Are you afraid of God? I have been. I didn't know it. I did not know it, but I was. I was a new Christian. I was pretty active. I'd been in the InterVarsity group. I learned a lot of things. Of course, I thought I knew everything. And I was facing death. I got into a bad situation swimming alone in the Atlantic Ocean off of the northern coast of Spain. I was too far out, and I realized that the shore was a long way away. And uh, the more I swam towards it, the further away it got. And after about an hour of fruitlessly swimming and getting quite tired, I knew I was done. I found out two things, which kind of surprised me. I found out, number one, I really did believe in God. Oh, yes. <laughs> I really did believe in God. And number two, holy smoke, I was scared. I was scared of meeting the judge. I wasn't ready. I was not ready. <coughs> I don't think we're ever ready in that sense, in the sense I was thinking then. I'm no more a faithful follower now than I was then. I have a lot more bad things behind me than I did then. But as the old hymn has it, grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace, grace that is greater than all my sin, God's grace. If our hold is not on how much we know, not on how much we've done, not on who we are in our jobs, not on who we are in the church congregation or our community. If our hold is on the grace of Jesus, we need not be afraid when it's our time to meet him. He may be so far beyond what we could imagine that we might have a moment of fear. We might be crawling on the floor like John momentarily, but we will hear his voice. Don't be afraid. I've looked at a number of aspects of John's vision of Christ. Each description of Christ. <coughs> Christ is alive forever. Christ the first and the last. Christ as ruler. Christ as judge. And Christ who says, don't be afraid. All of these are what the Bible teaches elsewhere about our Lord. The Bible is a unified thing, isn't it? It all says the same thing in different wonderful ways. Thank you. If we saw that vision today, we might use different symbols. We would use 21st century symbols.
to try to describe something beyond describing, to try to describe a Lord who is so far greater than we could imagine, we would use 21st century symbols. And people from the 31st century would say, what? But still, God was there. I think for some of us, this vision of Christ the Almighty is a challenge, as well as, is a, is a challenge, as well as an encouragement. Maybe a big challenge. It's an encouragement, but a challenge. God wants us to be in the world, but not of the world. And it's hard not to be of the world. We work the same jobs as everyone else. We drive similar cars. We use the same media. We eat at the same restaurants. We cook the same food. But people in our culture treat God as an option. A product whose message competes with all the advertising that sells other products. We need to be careful. They're very similar. But God wants us to seek him first. Number one, love the Lord thy God. You know. It's not an option. Christ expects to be number one. Not just a Sunday activity when we have time. And we may need to be careful to measure our thoughts and actions by what the Bible says, not what our culture says. It's a challenge. And when I get too wrapped up in myself, and I do, this word challenges me. And when I get too wrapped up in my pleasures, which are many, I'm so grateful. That's a challenge to me. And when my identity is focused on any achievements I've done, that's a challenge, isn't it? That's a challenge. Or when I'm too focused on the bad circumstances or how I feel, that's a challenge. The answer is to turn afresh to Jesus Christ. Push aside all these other things, important as they are. Plead for his grace and peace and will know his encouragement. May this heavenly perspective that John saw enrich the devotion and worship of each one of us and increase our faith and perseverance. In the sixth chapter of the long prophecy of Isaiah, he tells of a vision of God Almighty on his throne and of being commissioned with a message. The message that Isaiah was to preach was a very sad one. It was, tell them my truth, but they're not going to listen. Tell them to turn to me, but they're not going to turn to you, to me, and be healed. They're not going to do it. Well, John's vision came with a commission, with a message, a much more positive one. And the reminder for you and me, Christ loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's verses 5 and 6. In Revelation chapter 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. To him be glory and power forever and ever. John 3.16, which we use at the nursing home quite a lot, don't we, David? <laughs> says, um, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As the hymn has it, wonderful his love for me. Yet it's not just about us. It's about Christ being praised and glorified. To him be glory and power forever and ever, it says. Perhaps as we take the bread and wine today, we might especially want to praise and glorify Christ as well as being thankful for his love and his bringing us close to God through faith. Thank you, Father God, for sending your only Son 
with you before the foundation of the world in a, a union and a oneness that we can't even imagine. To be on earth to teach, to train, and to die. But then to be gloriously raised and lives with you in heaven. Thank you for our Savior Jesus. Give us a big picture, we pray, in our daily lives as we try to serve you. Thank you for this communion service. We commit each other into your hands in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. And would you read the benediction with me as we stand and dismiss ourselves? May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. Wow. Amen.